I don't have a quiz for you tonight, but I do have a question to start off with, and so it's the same as a quiz. I just wanted to save some time. What were the two purposes that we saw listed for miraculous gifts in the Scripture? Validate to verify the, the message. Okay, so, so validate the message of the apostles. They are called signs of an apostle, uh, and they were given to the apostles because the apostles were uh, were giving some pretty stunning revelations, right? I mean, don't worry about the law anymore. Uh, you, you don't have to. You don't have to give sacrifices anymore. Uh, Gentiles can now come in, be part of the uh, people of God. It, I mean, these, these would have been just terribly startling things for the Jews, and so God put His stamp of approval, as it were, His imprimatur, on the apostles and their message, so that it, they would be aware uh, that, in fact, this is this is valid. This is this is legitimate. What they're doing. So that was the first one. So there's signs of an apostle, and in that, by calling them a sign of apostles, uh, we are deliberately we are recognizing that, that that means they're not signs of Christians generally. If they were signs of Christians generally, uh, why then the uh, the the idea of them being signs of an apostle would be diluted. Okay, so that's the first. What's the second one? Yes. Okay. So they're kingdom markers, correct? Uh, and so we see this in Hebrews uh, chapter six. They were signs of a kingdom. Signs of the kingdom were done in your midst. These signs that Jesus did were signs to uh, validating the fact that he is the messianic king that has been promised. He does all the messianic stuff, including healings. The blind are seeing. The crooked are made straight, the lame are made to walk. These are all promises in the Old Testament. These are the things, kinds of things that the Messianic king will do, and he does them. Okay? So it demonstrates that he is the king, and I think perhaps uh, we, we can sort of make that, that this category just a little bit elastic here. They're signs of the kingdom that is markers of, of, of changes in the kingdom program, which perhaps... Uh, I suggest maybe why they continue into that into that first generation after Christ to let people know uh, that God's kingdom program has undergone some uh, some sur- surprising twists that might not have been anticipated. So these are the two purposes of miraculous gifts: to attest to the apostles and to their new message, and also to mark changes in God's kingdom program. With that in view, we turn to the question here as to whether miraculous gifts are for today. And the first thing we want to point out is if those were the purposes stated in Scripture for miraculous gifts, then those purposes are no longer with us. Okay? I say there's no single passage that unequivocally states that miraculous sign gifts have ceased. Some will point to 1 Corinthians 13, 8, but I think the timing is wrong on that. Uh, the, the gifts, uh, that, that, that which in part will be done away, uh, whether there will be tongues, they will cease. And so we, we do recognize that there is, that, that 
these miraculous gifts are subject to ceasing, but the timing of that chapter doesn't seem to work for us because uh, the timing is when, uh, when, when we see him face to face. Uh, so I would understand that, that that passage really doesn't speak to the present age per se. But that's very debated. But there are several theological ideas, I say here, that strongly point to the cessation of these miraculous gifts. First, the fact that they are called signs of an apostle and powers of the age to come means that they are not signs of a Christian or or powers of the present age. I can put it plainly like that. So this demands cessation of these sign gifts at all times other than the apostolic and kingdom eras. Otherwise, these designations would be meaningless. If there are signs of an apostle, if there are also signs of every Christian everywhere, then they're not distinctively signs of an apostle. If they're signs of the age to come, and they're at every time, that designation signs of the age to come means nothing as well. So based on these two verses alone, we should expect no miraculous gifts after the death of the last apostle, as carefully defined in Acts 1, or before the day of Yahweh, when the end times uh, commence and uh, God's kingdom program uh, starts uh, gaining speed. Paul's curtailment of miraculous gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 seems specifically to have occurred in view of their temporarily normative nature. He seems to be, I mean, he doesn't say at that time that tongues are absolutely off the table, okay? We're still in the apostolic period. We should expect at least some of that to continue, but we should expect them to be in decline, as the apostolic period comes to its close. And Paul seems to be concerned that the folks at Corinth are just going way crazy on on the tongues and the miraculous gifts. And so he's telling them, you know, seek more meaningful gifts. Seek better gifts. The, The kinds of gifts that you're looking for are not the ones that are useful in the long run in the life of the church. You should be seeking those instead. And he, and he seems to be putting the brakes on uh, the use of tongues. At least, at, at a very minimum, uh, uh, he's, he's, he's truncating uh, their use within the church, telling them this is how it should happen. And if you're doing it another way, that, that that's illegitimate. So he's talking about various illegitimate forms of tongues as we work through those chapters. So the death of the apostles, the 11 plus Paul, maybe a couple of others, but uh, probably those 12, severely limits the possibility of additional miraculous gifts. In fact, that's the thesis of Sam Waldron's book, To Be Continued, question mark, uh, that uh, once the apostles were gone, then there is no possibility of the, of the uh, signed gifts continuing. New Testament miracles were restricted to the period of the apostles and attempts to impose these gifts more broadly were considered excessive and as such discouraged. Okay, so first, those are, that's our first line of argument, these texts that describe the purposes of these miraculous gifts. But we've got others. Second, and related, the completion and recognition of canon eliminates all need for miraculous gifts. 
Miracles occur only when there is legitimate uncertainty about the authenticity of a message or of the messenger, or, case of the gifts in the in the New Testament, when there is a significant change in God's dealings with believers. That's their purpose. And so miracles attested to new revelation, that of the Old Testament prophets, that of Jesus Christ, that of the New Testament apostles and prophets, whose authority could not be confirmed objectively through the written word. They're, they're, coming, up with, they're, they're coming out with new data. And, and while certainly they were searching the scriptures daily to find out whether these things be true, uh, they couldn't corroborate, say, these things that Paul describes as a mystery, something that wasn't spoken of before. So he's got new data. How are we going to know whether that data is legitimate? Well, the, the, uh, the, 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 the miracles would do that. Okay? And uh, this seems to be uh, Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 14. Brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? And so what's his argument here? Well, miraculous gifts lose their legitimacy if they're not establishing the legitimacy of some new revelation. If I come with tongues but no new revelation, then the tongues are illegitimate. Okay, And so once we've gotten to the point where the revelation is complete, it's confirmed and established and put into a book and where we've got it, we no longer have the need for corroboration because that's that's historically been accomplished already. I'd also argue that Peter's argument in Second Peter one is another text that uh, that uh, that uh, confirms this. He says we have the prophetic word scripture made more sure. Now there's some debate as to whether this is more sure than a miracle or more sure because of a miracle. Both are true. Uh, but the but the point I think is made either way. The role of the miracle is subordinate to the function of the word. Once we have the word, the miracles have done all that they are supposed to have done. Okay, they either they either corroborated they corroborated the word, and then the word takes over as the better form of revelation than the miracle itself. Okay. Nextly here, we have a historical argument. Basically, for about 1,700 years, we have almost no people speaking in tongues or having miraculous gifts. Now, I won't, give, I won't say that that was an absolute absence. There, there always seems to be someone on the far fringes of Christianity that's doing weird stuff. I mean, we've, that's always been the case. Uh, with Christianity. Um, so I'm not going to say that there was an absence of these kinds of things, uh, but it was always on the on the non-Orthodox fringe. Uh, in the Orthodox mainstream, these miracles uh, disappeared uh, for a very long time. So if miracles are for the entire church age, they would continue. It's not. It wouldn't be something that's a matter of faith, right? Uh, if God is giving these gifts, they, they, they would happen whether or not uh, people had faith uh, to believe in them. And so the fact that they're not there strongly indicates, I think, that they're not intended to be practiced. And finally, I have another argument here, that modern-day miracles 
what passes as miracles today tend to differ significantly from their apostolic counterparts. Okay, so you know you go into your standard healing service. I was going to say Benny Hinn, but I guess he's he's supposed to have reformed himself. But uh, there's probably many people standing in line to take his place. So whoever took his place, okay. Uh, when you go into one of those healing services, uh, the miracles, so-called, that tend to take place in those don't really resemble the miracles of the biblical period. In the Bible, firstly, we would say gifts of healing were rare and abnormal. Okay, Again, we, we sometimes think that they were happening all the time in the Bible, but they're really only in very narrow windows. And even by the time we're getting you know, advanced in the apostolic period, Paul doesn't use a miracle to fix his thorn in the flesh. I mean, you would think that of all the people who had the power to do those kinds of things, Paul would be the one. But when he has this thorn in the flesh, what does he do? He prays three times earnestly until he finally gets an answer. Sorry, but it's not happening. And then he concludes, okay, that's probably for the best. Okay, so it's it, the miracles were rare and certainly were not something that would always happen. Treatment for grave illnesses in the book of James were not miracles but prayer. Bring the elders of the church and have them pray. Secondly, the miracles of the uh, of the uh, of the scriptures were visible and undeniable. You know, Acts 4.16, I think, probably gives us our best at, uh, at definition of a miracle. A miracle has been done in our midst, and we cannot deny it. Okay, So the miracles of the scriptures, by and large, overwhelmingly, are public and spectacular. And it seems that the more public and more spectacular they are, the more effective they are, because that was their purpose, to corroborate yet that, yes, this is something that God approves of. And so the, so the more spectacular they were, uh, they, the, the more successful those miracles would be in accomplishing their purpose, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. That's incredible, right? Walking on water. I mean, it, these, are, these are incredible miracles uh, that are being accomplished. Uh, but that's not the kind of miracles that tend to happen today. You know, somebody comes up, you know, I've got... I've got something wrong inside. Heal. It's all better. Okay? An invisible miracle. Okay? Well, that, 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 that's not the kind of miracles that God tends to do. Invisible miracles. No, he tends to do spectacular miracles. And, you know, I, I've... And, you know, it, it's... We are talking about the question of whether there are miraculous gifts uh, and not just whether miracles occur. But I think... Uh, if we're going to talk about a miracle, we ought to be defining it carefully. I was just the eye doctor last week, and uh, I had LASIK about eight or ten years ago, and it was mostly successful. And I went from you know, a factor of twelve diopters to less than one. Okay, and so you know, for nine years I haven't worn glasses. They want me to go back to them. So probably next time you see me, I'll be wearing glasses. But uh, but <laughs> but I, I, I go to the the lady who you know fits you for glasses, and she says, "Oh, that was a miracle. That was a miracle." And she just said it over and over. That was a miracle. Yeah. 
And I didn't have the heart to say, well, you know, my biblical definition, that, it wasn't really a miracle. <laughs> Thanks, but because, because that was not something that God did directly to affect something that was outside the normal course of events, supernatural. Now, a group of scientists figured out a way to manipulate the lens, the, 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 the lens of a person, so that they don't have to wear glasses anymore. It was secondary causation. Providence, thankful to God for it. Nonetheless, it wasn't a miracle. You know, probably 300 years ago, the first person who wore glasses thought that was a miracle too. <laughs> but but it wasn't. It was it was just it was just the providential outworking of God. Okay, and so miracles have to be visible and undeniable to qualify. I've talk to some folks, you know, so, so I believe that God does miracles. Okay, what kinds of miracles? Well, he, he healed my grandma of cancer or, or, or whatever the case may be. I say, okay. And, and I, I, say, I suppose it's possible. But was she taking medicine at the time? Yeah. Was she seeing doctors? Yeah. Radiation? Yeah. Uh, was she doing everything she could to strengthen her immune system? Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of secondary causation going on here. Now, could God have accomplished a miracle? I, I can't put God into a box and say, don't do a miracle. Nonetheless, I can say that there's really an awful lot of secondary causation going on. Now, if somebody would say, you know, you know, my, my, my son went to Iraq, lost both of his arms, he came home, I prayed that his arms would regrow, and they did. I'd probably have to rechange my theology. <laughs> but those aren't the kinds of Miracles you see being accomplished in in those those healing shows that they have uh, at the at the uh, at the local glory barn. Okay, so miracles in modern day are much different than the biblical one. Number three, the miracles tended to be for the public benefit of the body, not for the private benefit of the individual. Okay, in fact, it's it's an interesting thing to see that once. Jesus saw that the miracles were ineffective in convincing people who were following him around to believe his message, that they were just following him around to get their mouths filled and their stomachs full, what does he do? He stops doing the miracles, which seems to be the opposite of what we'd expect, right? Well, if those, those miracles weren't working, let's redouble our efforts, do more and bigger miracles so that people will believe. But no, he says, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to waste divine energies just to fill people's stomachs. My miracles are done for specific purposes, and if those purposes aren't being accomplished, then I'm not going to keep doing the miracles just as a show of compassion. Okay? So biblical tongues, or Luke's, uh, Luca uses a different word, specifically involved known human languages, in every case, that were commonly in use in the world, 1 Corinthians 14 says, and has intrinsic meaning, unlike modern-day ecstatic speech and coded messages uh, that often pass as tongues today. And they were also practiced in an orderly manner and uniformly translated. If you spoke in tongues and someone didn't stand up to translate what you said, you had to sit down and shut up. That was the rule. Because otherwise, they're just a source of confusion. And tongues were, like all miracles, rare and certainly not universal. 
thing. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 12. Not all of you speak in tongues. Puts about plainly. Everybody has their own gift, and not all of you teach uh, speak in tongues. And so any any sect or denomination that requires believers to speak in tongues in order to validate them are frankly violating those passages directly. Not everybody speaks in tongues, Paul says. So all of this comes down uh, to a conclusion that tongues are rare, uh, uh, miracles are rare, and in fact, based on their purposes as stated in Scripture, uh, do not seem to have any place in the Christian church. And I'm not saying that God can't do miracles. What I am suggesting is it does not seem that it is his intention in the present age to be doing them. And so by observation, uh, we're, we're making that conclusion. Okay, Thoughts on that? Questions? It seems like I've heard where on the mission field we see some of these things. Is that the truth or is that... Yeah, I... I you know, where they don't have... The gospel hasn't really been... Yeah, I... It's it's one of those things that you, yeah you hear a lot of anecdotes, yeah. but but hard evidence is off is really hard to come by, and and perhaps sometimes you also have situations where you've got you've got uh, uh, you've got you know medical standards that are are you know they, they might not you know somebody might revive. They didn't. They, they declared them dead, but they weren't real careful. <laughs> they weren't, you know. So, so sometimes we often we have situations like that too. So, um, as far as hard evidence goes, uh, that's that's pretty in pretty short supply. I think we'd know about if someone was clearly, obviously dead, especially for a long period of time, and then comes back to life. That'd be splattered all over the news, even if it happened in Togo or wherever. Wherever I mean, I'm being politically incorrect by singling them out, but other thoughts. And also, they try to tell you you just don't have enough faith, or otherwise it'd be there. That's not true either. Right. Yeah. I love that phrase uh, when you were talking about seeking more meaningful gifts, and I think that's the whole point: is that you know, like meaningful gift, whether. It, and I, I'm, not, I'm guessing that's what you meant by that, but like if somebody's been an excellent speaker and they've got that gift to teach or a gift of compassion and whatever, like that's the real meaningful stuff that, you right. know, can grow a church and can make people, you know, really see God's love through those gifts that you have. Yeah, and, and as we saw last week, you can actually seek and cultivate gifts that you don't have natively. So it's it's not as though you just are stuck with what you've got. And, you know, I, you know they, don't, they, don't, they don't need my gift, so... I'll just sort of come and sit. Uh, you, you can cultivate gifts. Uh, it seems to be the implication of that. Other thoughts? Okay, so that's miraculous gifts. What are the purposes then of ordinary gifts or non-miraculous gifts? I say in a broad sense, the purpose of spiritual gifts is always corporate and scripture. Gifts are not provided for the good of individuals. So the idea of the devotional use of tongues, which seems to be uh, more palatable to some. Okay, I just go into a closet and I pray to myself, and so I, I, I get personal benefit from this gift. But as we look at the gifts in Scripture, all the gifts are there for corporate purposes. 
since the local church is the only legitimate, visible, organized expression of the body in this age, it follows that the gifts that uh, we find in Scripture are to be exercised in the local church. And that's that's reflected here in these texts. God has appointed in the church for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body. As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another. By the way, that one another passage, that, the, the, that phrase one another that appears, I think, 55 times in the New Testament. Uh, d- don't think of that just one another as you and your neighbor here, but the one another is, is, is almost always code for one another within the life of the church. Okay, so uh, so that, that seems to be the point here of all the gifts, uh, but specifically here, these ordinary gifts. There's also some specific purposes given for the establishment of local churches. Apostles, prophets, evangelists were specifically equipped to launch local churches And today, only the last of these three uh, functions survive, and I wouldn't even call that an office, okay? But uh, Paul tells Timothy, do the work of evangelism, by which I understand him to be saying you should be doing the work of taking the gospel to places it is not and establishing their local churches. So that's evangelism. So it's a function that persists today, but it's not a gift per se. It's for the common good. To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the edification of the body. Since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church, for the work of the ministry. Gifts are given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So each one of us, then, is given gifts a gift or gifts, uh, whereby we are, you know, equipped to serve the church in a specific way. And so how do we get them? Well, they're sovereignly distributed. Romans twelve six. we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So these gifts are given to us by grant. They're also called gifts of the Spirit, according to His will. So the Holy Spirit is apparently active. That's why we have this under the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active in distributing gifts and distributing persons with those gifts uh, to the churches as they have need. And this, this some, some of this probably, uh, like, like we saw with Jeremiah, you know, <laughs> for for years he had been prepped even before he was born for his function. Same thing with Paul. Uh, He was prepped for years before he was a believer for the function that he was going to have. And so these gifts are long in coming sometimes. So don't 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 think of these as things, you know, I get saved and poof, I've got a new gift. Uh, Oftentimes these gifts were cultivated long before you were even a Christian. Uh, God was preparing you so that once you become a believer, you have this uh, vehicle of service in the church. In fact, they're just called gifts. I think tell, tells us that that they are that they are something granted to us by the Spirit. Doesn't mean that we can't seek greater gifts. First Corinthians twelve says. Doesn't mean we can't stir up existing gifts that have grown cold, perhaps. Uh, 
while we may have a variety of gifts, the rule seems to be to cultivate those gifts have, that have the greatest value for the edification of your particular church setting. So you look around, that's under the guidance of your elders, and say, what needs to be done in the church? And you notice something that perhaps doesn't seem to be getting done, or something that you think you could contribute to, and you say something to one of the elders or one of the leaders in one of the departments, you know, and, and you say, you know, would it be okay if I X, Y, Z, and, and, and that's how the church works. And so sometimes you volunteer, sometimes people will notice that these gives in you and say, hey, notice that you are really good with kids. What do you think about being part of whatever kids program we have here? And so that, that, that seems to be how how it works. Yeah, you had a question here. I was just going to say, Mark, do you think this is something that we should have spent a whole lot of time yeah, know, figuring out what our gift is? Just like you said, I mean, we're, yeah. we're here to serve the body. So, right. <clears throat> you know, if we need to do, if we have, you know, like we need to scrub toilets, uh, you know, that's something that we need to be willing to do. Correct. And I think that sometimes we can, you know, maybe spend too much time trying to identify what that one gift right. is. And then, you know, if we don't get that opportunity, then we just kind of, you know, sit on the side. Yeah, yeah. For, a, for a while there, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, there was a huge emphasis on taking these tests to find out what your gift is. Um, and thankfully, I think that's sort of gone by the wayside. When I inherited these notes, in fact, I had about six pages of detailed definitions of of what all the gifts were, I I, I took it all out <laughs> because I, I just don't think that that's all that helpful to spend time trying to figure out your gift. You, you, you find a place of service in the church. People identify you as having having skills, abilities, gifts in a specific area, and and you, you end up matching yourself up with a task that that you enjoy doing, that you're good at, and that serves the church. Right. If I could just uh, emphasize that a little more. <laughs> because that, that emphasis that you just said about identifying your gift, one of the things I've noticed is that people, when they identify their gift, they take that as their identity. Right. That's my identity. I have this ability, and therefore the church should make a way for me to use that gift. But as you were emphasizing earlier, these gifts are for the common good. Right. Paul, Paul never talks about find your gift and then the church will find a place for you to use that gift. It's good if they can, but the gifts are for the common good. So it may be that the church needs your gift at that time, but they may not need it. And God may not want you to be exercising it this time, even though you may have it, he may have other lessons for you, like Rich was saying. You know, so... Yeah. You know, you just, it's not just because I have this gift, therefore I must exercise this gift in the local church necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, I, just, I have this really good memory of my uh, grandfather, and he was 80-something and still doing all like the Sunday school superintendent stuff in our little Baptist church growing up. And I was like, Pops, you know, how did you get started doing this? And I remember he looked at me and he said, nobody was doing it. And, you know, here I thought, like, for years and years, that was, like, his bread and butter. He really wanted to do it. I mean, but it was just, like, nobody was doing it. And that was always a testimony to me. This has been, like, 
Yeah. You know? Yeah, my I in fact my son went to a a small church. He's in he's at college right now and he went to a church and Yeah, he's he's gifted musically and he was hoping that he was gonna be able to you know, lead singing or 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 you know, do specials or do what whatever and, and so and uh, and he got there and the church is pretty small. They didn't and they had a guy already who's leading the singing and so you know you know the pastor said you know what we really need is for you to clean toilets this week because you know, they, they have a rented building and the Amish people that use it on Saturday night make a mess and so that's what we really need and so I, I can tell David was pretty disappointed with that but I think he learned a very important lesson that was what the common good was that's that's what was necessary for the, for the service of the church and so uh, so I'd like to say a, le- a lesson learned here that he needed. Okay. Okay, so gifts are sovereignly distributed. Everybody has one. To each one has been given a manifestation of the Spirit. Each one has received a gift. No one has, But no one has all the gifts. And the gifts vary among believers. That's so that we need each other, so that, that we are a body. Not all of us are eyes. Not all, you know, he goes through the body parts. We're not all eyes. We're not all ears. Some of us are unseemly. You know, we clean the toilets, right? Okay, uh, because that's I mean, that's that's the way a body works, and and, you, and somebody has to do them all. Uh, so no believer can successfully function apart from the body because no one has all the gifts. We need each other. Okay, and then that discussion of the determination of spiritual gifts, which uh, we got early. And we'll just skip that paragraph because we've already covered it. Okay? Last topic here, and we'll have to be pretty speedy on it, is the question of guidance by the Holy Spirit. Guidance by the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit does guide us in some sense. We're to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. We read earlier. But the question then is, how is this accomplished? What should we expect the Holy Spirit to do uh, as he guides us? And I want to point to you in your bibliography some books by, uh, particularly by Gary Friesen, Kevin DeYoung, and James Petty, uh, written on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I, I think they're very careful, uh, reasoned discussions. So... We're not going to cover it really thoroughly tonight, so there's some things you can read, and all of those are accessible. Central issues here. While variations concerning the means of divine guidance abound, three central issues are quite binary in nature. The basis. Does God have an individual will for each believer that is distinct from his moral and sovereign will? So does God have an individual dot that you need to pursue And if you miss it, you've sort of settled for God's second best. Second question, then, is the means. Does the Holy Spirit guide you through new revelation beyond what is in the Scriptures? Or is is his guidance limited to the wise application of the revelation that he's already given to us in Scripture? And then, the utility. Does divine guidance, such as it is after we've defined it, merely advise us? Or does it regulate us? That is, is it normative? Okay, is it something? Does God tell us what we must do in uh, in in His guidance? So let's look at these issues in in turn here. First is the will of God. 
We find very clearly stated that God has a will and that this will can very clearly be defined two different ways. You know, we recognize that not every word in Scripture has a single meaning, and here's an example of this. Uh, The will of God clearly has two meanings. There's God's sovereign will, sometimes called his secret will or his decretive will. We call it secret because it's unrevealed. Okay? What does this include? Well, all that will ever occur in God's universe. Ephesians 1. God works everything out in conformity with his purpose, with the purpose of his will. He's got a plan that is put in place. It includes everything. Nothing will deviate from that plan. That is his decretal sovereign will. And on the basis of this, he can make clear prophecies because he knows precisely and exactly what will happen all the time because he's determined it. What is our response to it? We submit to it. There's really nothing we can do. We can't change the will of God. Isaiah 14, the Lord Almighty is purposed to comfort him. Answer, no one. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will. Among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? (laughs) Because God gets to do whatever he wants. Okay? So it's a secret will. We don't know what it is uh, uh, until, until it happens. It includes everything. Our response is simply to submit to it. And it is accomplished by the mere energy of God. I make known the end from the beginning and from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand. Why? Because I'll do it. I'll do everything I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Okay, so that's the decretal, sovereign, secret will of God, and we can do nothing about it other than submit to it. Okay, but we also find references to the will of God uh, that have more to do with what we ought to do, morally speaking. So, what is its scope? Well, everything that we ought to do, or everything that ought to occur in a universe submitted to God revealed expectation. So we might call this God's will of moral expectation. Some call it his desired will. I can live with that. Uh, Perhaps it's confusing, though, because it may give us the sense that God wants it, but, you know, he's he's sort of flummoxed because he can't can't get it. Uh, But I I think we should think of this as, as something a little bit different than that. So they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. What's man's response? Find out what the moral will of God is by reading your Bible. The inalterable content perfectly disclosed in the Christian scriptures. And do it. Okay. Um, could you explain how you know, it, it makes this sound like God's got his will and it's going to happen. But when you look in the Old Testament, there are things like with Hezekiah. Okay. He was supposed to die and then he prayed and God relented and gave him 15 more years. Right. Yeah, and in each of these cases, we would say that it was always, it's not as though God changed his decretal will from all of eternity. Now, like for instance, when, he, when, when Jonah goes into Nineveh and says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, there was apparently a condition, an unspoken condition, that if, people, if they repent, this won't happen, right? And so, in fact, Jonah, as, as much as admits that in chapter 4, right? 
he says, after he's sitting out on the uh, out on the hillside and the fire doesn't fall down on Nineveh, he says to God, "I knew you were going to do this because of your character. You're a, you're a, you're you're a God who is gracious and forgiving. I knew this was going to happen." Okay, so so he was aware that there was a condition attached to that. Yet forty days and and Nineveh will be destroyed. They respond in, in, in repentance, and God withholds the judgment. But all of that was anticipated by God. It's not as though God sent Jonah and wondered, yeah, I wonder if they're going to do what I... I wonder if they're going to repent or not. It's one way or the other. And, oh, they did it. Good. Yeah, I don't have to destroy them. No, no, no. God knew and had planned all of this in advance. And so he built some conditions with into his decree, but they but his decree is not for that reason conditional. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. The same thing I would say well, that would be true then of Hezekiah. God says you're going to be destroyed, you're going to die. And he prays. Okay. As we're going to see here, prayer is part and part I mean you would say, why, why do we pray? If, if everything's determined from day one, why should we pray? It doesn't change anything. Except for the fact that we know that the prayers that we pray are part of God's decree. They are effective. The, 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 effect, the, the, the prayer of the righteous man avails much. It does do something. It doesn't change God's decree. But within God's decree, God has decreed that prayer to the end that it was intended. Okay, so so even though there's yeah, there's you know there, there there's some of these conditions uh, along the way, the, the 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 purpose of God in eternity past is fixed. Nothing changes in that. Okay. So we also have then the moral will of God, and what's our response? What is it? Okay, I'll do it. So do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. That's the will of God. John seventeen seven. anyone who chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God. Okay, and they find out, Acts 17 says, by searching the scriptures. Is God's moral will always accomplished? Well, no. How do I know this? Because 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And the fact is, sadly, that some people have engaged in sexual immorality over the years. So God's moral will is not always carried out. In fact, it's very frequently not carried out. Okay, So we, we see there that there's two senses of God's will. One that is secret, fixed, and all we can do is submit to it. One that is revealed, and it's found in the scripture, we simply discover it and do what it says. So we've got two expressions of the will of God in scripture. But the question then is, is there something sort of in between? And this is what people have always been looking for. People want certainty. I mean, it's, it's just it's part of the human condition, right? We, we, we want to know for sure, that we've done the right thing or we're doing the right thing. Okay, and so the question is, okay, where do I, you know, the kids, you know, where, where are we going to go to college? And I, and I remember when I was a kid, there was a, there was a 
young fellow, one of my best friends. And he was praying about where he should go to college. And God didn't answer him. So he decided to stay home. And I remember asking, what did you expect God to say to you? I mean, how did you expect God to tell you this? And he didn't know. He just figured that he'd know it when it happened. And it never happened, so he stayed home. Figured since God said gave no answer, he must want him to stay home. Well, that, that's 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 unfortunate, and perhaps he missed something in life because of that. So, is there a an individual will that God, you know, sort of takes a little bit from each side? Okay, there's a secret will that you can't know until it happens, but if you pray really hard, or if you or beg God and plead God that maybe he'll open the door just a little bit so you can see. Oh, I'm supposed to go to Cedarville. Door shut. Okay. <laughs> the fact is, God doesn't give you that kind of information. And, in fact, there's no mechanism for him to do so. Right? I mean, there's, you're going to read it somewhere? Uh, so... So there's 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 no mechanism for that, and so there's a secret will, there's a revealed will. How do you make that decision? Well, you study what the scriptures have to say. Well, there's certain places I probably ought to go. Okay. Number two, you look at your own skills, your own gifts, and you and you make wise decisions based on who you are, what you want to be, and which school is most likely to get you there. Okay. And you do your research, and you do your homework, and you study it, study it out, figure it out. And then sometimes when you have two schools that are just neck and neck here, you just pick one. Okay, it's 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 not a matter of of God sort of secretly revealing something to you uh, by some sort of special knowledge in, in a sort of a Gnostic sense. Now, some have said that there is a an individual will of God, and it's sort of a parody of it here. Its scope, well, it's God's perfect plan for you. What's your response? Discover its private, changing content, hidden to all but the eye of earnest faith, and submit to it. And then God desires is accomplished, but he doesn't affect it. It might not happen if we don't listen carefully enough. Okay? But there is no reason to think that there is such a thing as a perfect will of God uh, that we need to find in order to be rightly related to him. Okay? And uh, I give some reasons why it's a bad idea to think in those terms. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get all this done here. Um, the proof texts that are often given really don't say uh, what what some seem some think they say. I'll instruct you and teach you in the ways you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Uh, sort of, sort of special guidance here, but that's probably not what we should think. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge in him and he will make your paths straight. Unfortunately, the King says, the King James says, direct your paths. And so there have been some who've thought, okay, he's going to sort of push me down this trail or that trail. Uh, but that's, that's not the, the intent of that passage at all. So we can work our way through these. Um, there are, of course, occasions in, in the scriptures where God gives direct guidance of this nature to people, but that's because of their living in that era of incomplete scripture. 
I think probably the biggest thing here is it hopelessly conflates God's secret and revealed wills. Uh, so like God's decreed will, this secret will, this, 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 this individual will exceeds what is written, but like God's moral will, it can be discerned. Well, which is it? Uh, usually it's by means of some sort of special, non-discursive knowledge that exceeds Scripture. God told me. Oh, and how was that? I just sort of, I don't know. He just told me. Well, no, God tells you things through this. This is the only telling that God does. There's no other source of information that comes directly from God. There's no, eh, oftentimes it's, it's, it's the burdens. God lays this on my heart. God told me to. Well, those, those are these existential kinds of phrases that sometimes show up in, you know, in our testimonies and such really have no basis in the scriptures because the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we can follow the words of the law. That's, that's the guiding verse, I think, here. There are certain things we cannot know, other things we can know. Take what you can know, know it as thoroughly as you can, and trust that it's and and, and trust uh, God to you know make your paths the way He wants them to be. Uh, but there are certain secret things you can't anticipate. You know, you know, you, you might you might uh, you know decide to make some sort of grand decision. You're going to buy a house, and then you find out that you have cancer, and you're, you die in two months. And now your wife's stuck with a house that she can't pay off. Okay? <laughs> I, just, I couldn't have anticipated it. True. I mean, there's certain secret things that you can't anticipate. You don't anticipate. And that's, that's the way it is. Okay? So uh, so we shouldn't think of this, this as possible. And I think oftentimes this idea of God sort of slipping you data betrays serious theological deficiencies four myths I have here. The myth that God will erase the creator-creature distinction and share his secret will with extremely pious people. This is something that's been with Christianity from its earliest days. It first popped up in the second century with this idea called Gnosticism. Okay, This idea that if I am pious enough... God will slip me secret information. That's what the idea of, of, of a, a true Gnostic, you know, they, they, you know back in the day there, were, there would have been these, these grades of Christianity, these steps. Uh, and, and once you got to be the Gnostic, the true Gnostic, you had knowledge that other people didn't have. Okay? And it was used in, in terrible ways within the life of the church. But there is no such thing as a true Gnostic, someone who has special, uh, you know, a direct pipeline of of communication uh, back and forth with God. That God gives you direct information. It just just doesn't happen. Yes. I was just going to say one verse that really helped me out was uh, Proverbs uh, eight sixteen nine. A man's heart, you know, he makes his plans, but the Lord determines his steps. Right. Is that yeah? With God's providence, yeah, that we can trust Him. Yeah. Even though we make our plans, and we should, and we should make our plans, and we should have counselors, and we should commit it to God for Him to work through that. 
attorneys or staffs. Right. And that, that's always been helpful to me through the years. Yes. I remember being in high school and, you know, about the, you know, the one, being in the center of God's will. Right. And I remember thinking, well, I kind of blew it. I think we're on Bob Jones. So, uh, <laughs> There's no hope for me. <laughs> yeah, so you're and you settled for God's second best. I stayed home. I got the same answer you're in front of. That explains a lot, you know. <laughs> second myth: the myth is that I must have perfect certainty about the future in order to make decisions regarding it. Well, that's not true. That's not true. We, we, we don't need to have perfect certainty in order. And you, you probably all know people, maybe you're one of these people, who, who, who just gets paralyzed trying to make a decision just because of, because of uncertainty. And, and you, you really don't like to move until you have all the dots in a row and you're sure nothing is going to go wrong. And unfortunately, what tends to happen is you never get anything done because you never get there. Okay. The fact is, you don't need to have certainty. In fact, you can't have certainty. That's, 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 you're not God, right? And, and yet, God tells you to step out and do things. Uh, plan, yes. Seek help, wisdom, all that, yes. But but you don't have to have certainty in order to move forward. I was just going to say, I think it's, for me, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust the Lord all I've been there before where you're, you've been paralyzed. You want to make that, you know, you don't want to mess up. You want to make that right decision, and there's no way you can hold that. Right. You, know, you want to be wise, but that's where you need to trust the Lord, lean into Him. And of course, there are some people that make more good decisions than others, but it's not because they had a pipeline to God. Probably more because they did a little bit more research going into the decisions. Letter C: The myth that if the Bible doesn't speak directly to a decision, that cannot inform that it cannot inform that decision. Okay, here's here's, uh, what I mean by that. Well, the Bible doesn't say anywhere go to Bob Jones University. It couldn't. And so, therefore, the Bible doesn't say anything about... Well, the Bible says an awful lot about life in all of its ins and outs. And even though it doesn't speak immediately and directly to every issue, it always speaks indirectly and principially to what I have to do. So so don't necessarily look for, you know... You know, what's the, the the old joke? You know, you open up the Bible, my verse for the day. Jesus, Judas went out and hanged himself. And I can't go with that one. Go thou and do likewise. Well, <laughs> it, you know, if if you're looking for that direct, you know, that direct instruction, you're you're going to you're going to miss a lot of what God has to say to you. You know, uh, it, so so just because it doesn't say go to don't go to Harvard. Now, there are some principles that sort of should inform us, you know, like I don't have enough money. And so there's principles of stewardship that say this is probably not a good choice for me unless I can get a full rights scholarship, you know. <laughs> so and so and so these these principles 
start to, to come to bear. And they help us make a biblical decision. A, a Christian decision. Even though the Bible doesn't say anywhere specifically where you ought to go to college or not. Yeah. But when in the God's eternal decree in his secret will, if I decide I'm gonna to go to this college and this college, I apply to both, one says no. God's directed me. Well, in an in indirect some sense. At least no to this one. I mean, in an indirect sense, yes, but it's it's not as though God stepped into the space time continuum and 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 blocked your application, right? Okay. But like when Paul was made his plan to go somewhere, he was. Well, that's a little bit different because God actually. I mean, that's this was the era of actual instruction from God. God actually told him what to do in that in that situation. So, it, it, I mean, I don't know if that's an apples-to-apples kind of comparison. And in Providence is tricky to read. Right. You might get turned out from that college, but you may say, you know, I feel like I really should go there. And you might want to retake your ACT, right. make a better score, and go. So it's not, it's not as though that providential thing that happens is some sort of clear, right. direct God speaking to you. You have to weigh it against other things. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to my, my other son, right? <laughs> yeah, he, he wanted to go to U of M for engineering. His ACT score was too low, so he retook the test. And he got in the second time. But but uh, it, so, so just because he didn't get in didn't mean that that was God's sovereign announcement that you can't go to U of M. So... Right, it, it, you, you, you can't you can't read these as direct <laughs> direct instruction from God, if I can put it that way. Letter D here. There's another myth here that's that's out there that there's a shortcut to divine guidance that bypasses the hard work of Bible study, prayer, and seeking God, godly counsel. Or perhaps I could say just laziness, right? Okay? You know, some people just don't want to do the work to do the research to make the best decision. And so they say, God told me. And somebody would say, you sure? <laughs> yeah, God told me. Well, I guess I can't really argue with that, but you might want to rethink that. And and that's 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 sometimes the problem with people. They'll say, they'll, they'll, they'll use that to sort of get people off their back and avoid the hard work of... Of, 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 of doing what's necessary to make a good decision. So by suggesting that there are normative individual guidance available for the believer outside the scriptures, this traditional model advocates an insufficient Bible, one that is sufficient perhaps for faith but not for practice. So the Bible doesn't give me everything I need for life and godliness. I need to have something else. God has to, God has to sort of slide it to me under the under the table here so I know what to do. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, I talk here about the idea of uh, sort of wrap that this up with a question here of continuing revelation. Is there a way to get more information from God than what scripture has? And often people will credit the Holy Spirit with giving this information. There's reasons to think that's not true. Bible Scripture holds out no promise or expectation of divine guidance through continuing revelation. 
at best, we've got an inference from historical experience, which is rarely a, a, a good way to go. Secondly, Scripture speaks to matters containing revelation when it announces its own sufficiency. Bible thoroughly equips the believer for every good work and gives him everything necessary for life and godliness. So if you want to know what God wants you to do, this is where you go, right? Because it gives you everything necessary for life and godliness and prepares you for every good work. The scope of biblical sufficiency is very broad and implies that the greatest need of the believer is not more revelation, but wisdom to apply the revelation that we already have. Bible speaks for that reason to everything, even though it doesn't contain all information. All that can be known accrues precisely because it conforms to the preconditions of intelligibility found in this scripture. There's no area of neutrality that falls outside the scope of biblical authority. And so we find here uh, that the scriptures alone are our source of divine guidance. So, God forbids, then, the addition of material to the scriptures. And he's not merely saying, uh, God is not merely saying with this that one source of revelation is complete. He's saying that there is no more. There's nothing more that has equal authority to the scripture and appeals to normative sources of authority outside the Bible are discounted. Multiplied sources of normative authority diffuse that authority and diminish that authority. It takes our eyes off of the God of the scriptures. Okay? We've got a few objections there that I don't know that we really have time to uh, uh, to go through, but uh, let me let me see if you have some questions before we uh, before we call this a uh, uh, before we call this a semester here. But questions here on guidance, perhaps. Okay, good. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, it's a hard question. I, I think uh, we, we, we wish we could have more information from God than we do at times. The fact is, what we have is everything we need. And so uh, hopefully uh, that sort of sets you, it, 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 in some ways sets you at ease. Uh, that, should, that keeps you from being anxious. If you have the anxiety to spend more time in the scriptures and you know, doing the research necessary uh, to make the decision, uh, don't just sort of anxiously wait for information from God that's never going to come. Okay, new information. Okay? No questions? Okay, then uh, that's all for this semester. Uh, next semester we'll be t- uh, doing a class on... Uh, maybe something a little bit more mundane here, but uh, doctrines of man and sin will take over the most of it. Probably about 12 of the 14 weeks will be uh, covering the uh, doctrines of man and sin, and then a couple of weeks at the very end to squeeze in the doctrine of angels in here. But don't think of that as the uh, dominant topic of the class. But uh, that's that'll be the plan for for next semester things for 14 week semester a little longer in this in spring okay any announcements as we wrap things up okay